0: This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. So since we are already a few weeks into this year's short 60-day legislative session, I thought now would be a good time to elevate a couple of voting-related bills. The first would put a halt to odd-year elections, like the one that we just had, and the other would remove the long list of advisory votes that we see at the front of our ballots. And here to talk about the importance of both of those is our friend Andrew Villeneuve. He is the founder of the Northwest Progressive Institute, and he has been taking on anti-tax zealot Tim Eyman since he was in high school with his organization Permanent Defense, which by the way, is just celebrating its 20th anniversary next month. Andrew, hello, how are you? Congratulations on 20 years, man, that's awesome.
1: Thank you so much, it's a delight to be with you, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about these current issues in the legislative session and all that we need to do to increase progressive turnout participation.
0: Here, here to that. And, and I, I know that you are working on a blog post about how we're going to do exactly that, and we'll close on that today. So people, there's, there's something really great waiting for you at the end of this uh, broadcast today. I wanna to start though with Senator Patty Cooter's Bill 5182. So this would get rid of, as I said, advisory votes. These are the numerous items that clog up our ballots um, that ask you to basically approve or reject legislation that's already been passed, mostly to do with tax issues. They are, of course, the creation of our pal Tim I'man. You and I in the past have talked about the many problems with advisory votes. First and foremost, that they discourage voting, right? So talk about how.
1: So there's a number of ways in which advisory votes discourage voting. They're really not advisory, of course. Uh, They're really anti-tax propaganda items. Iman formulated them in order to make sure that he can always be on the ballot. So even if he doesn't qualify an initiative one year, he's still on the ballot thanks to his advisory votes. They are automatically triggered whenever the legislature takes an action that raises revenue. So if they raise a fee or a tax, or even if they rescind a tax exemption like they did a couple of years ago for Boeing, that would trigger one of these propaganda pieces. And they appear very near the top of the ballot. The only things that would be above them would be initiatives or referenda that are actually real. And everything else goes below. So all of your local offices, all of your state offices, even federal offices appear below advisory votes. And again, those are a misnomer. They are not. They shouldn't really be called that. But that's how Ayman uh, brands them. So that's what they've been called. Usually the first person to name something has an edge, and that name tends to stick. So he's very clever with, with his schemes. But these are really propaganda pieces. And the way they discourage voting is simply they mislead and confuse people and what we've seen in academic literature and academic research is that when you have more complex ballots you have problems you know like roll off uh, which you know is is a real is a real issue that we've seen over and over again in elections but you you, you have all these problems related to fatigue where people stop voting on issues or they get uh, discouraged from voting because they can't figure out what it is that they're voting on they may get distracted so if people don't go through the ballot and finish filling it out then you have a potential turnout problem because people aren't actually going to return that ballot having voted a completed ballot or they skip over things and that's not really a great habit for people to be in you know skipping items on the ballot because if you don't know something and you just skip it, well, then you're not not voting on that item. And I think people expect, rightly, that everything that's on the ballot will have meaning, that will count, you know, that you're being asked to make a decision because you're either electing someone to office to make decisions for the community or you're deciding the fate of a ballot measure. So a proposition or a charter amendment or a constitutional amendment or an initiative or a referendum, something that creates law or makes law. And so advisory votes run counter to everything that people generally understand to be true about elections because they're fake and they look real right you're being asked a question repeal or maintain this tax but your vote counts for nothing and you're actually being duped about what it is that you're being asked to vote on that the tax that is being put in front of you is being described in bad terms, you know, it's a 10 year cost of it. Well, we don't budget in 10 year increments. And you're being told that the legislature did this without a vote of the people. Well, it's the legislature's job to do things without a vote of the people because they're elected to do so, right? And then of course you're being told that it's for government spending, but you know what? That's not really a description of what a revenue increase is for. When the legislature increases revenue, there's always a reason behind that. And you're not being told what that is. So everything about these is bad and getting rid of them would be a great thing for Washington.
0: And I want to underscore something here. And that is that these votes don't actually impact the legislation, right? The legislation is already passed. So really, they're, they're ultimately meaningless, right?
1: Correct. They're after the fact. And the reason that they're after the fact is because the legislature is meant to be punished by Tim Iman when they do this. He, he wants to discourage them from doing any kind of progressive tax reform because if you do, even if I don't do an initiative to repeal it, I'm still going to have this propaganda automatically placed on the ballot that's, that's kind of whacking you for having done this. And we saw that last year, there were three advisory votes, three p- propaganda pieces that Iman cooked up uh, automatically he didn't have to write them they were already like pre-baked right all he had to do was watch as the attorney general stuck a couple numbers in there and boom his formula just appeared on the ballot it's an automatic thing you know when you don't have to do any work and you still get your propaganda out there paid for a taxpayer expense That's just a great thing. Tim Ivan loves this. And of course, he doesn't want these to go away, but they need to go away.
0: You know, I I just want to encourage everybody to use your framing here. Uh, Propaganda piece, I think, is exactly the way that we should be referring to these, not advisory votes. You've done some polling around this issue. What does it show?
1: Well, it shows that most voters who have an opinion actually want to get rid of advisory votes. They want to get rid of these propaganda pieces. You can actually think of them as push polls. They're really influencing public opinion as opposed to measuring it. Iman says it's all about collecting feedback. No, it isn't. It, you know, if you all remember the infamous push poll, uh, the Bush campaign benefited from in South Carolina in two thousand, where people were called and they were told, you know, hey, we're doing a poll and. Uh, we're gonna ask you about John McCain, but when they were asking about John McCain, they weren't really asking about John McCain so much as they were telling people that John McCain was a bad guy who was a hypocrite, right? And then at the end they said, well, what do you think of John McCain? Well, that was just sort of like an empty gesture. They weren't really interested in what people thought about John McCain. They were telling them what to think about John McCain so that people would vote for Bush instead of McCain. And that's basically what advisory votes are, telling you what to think and then pretending to ask for your opinion. The question is meaningless. You know, nobody is actually using these things to make any decisions after the fact. The legislature ignores the results of these propaganda pieces, and rightly so because they can't tell us anything. The Washington Policy Center, you know, and I've had a long-running argument about this. The WPC, which should know better, which you know is a right-wing think tank, but still they're thinkers, or at least they say they are. They should know that you can't get any valid data from asking a biased question. It's not possible. If you ask a loaded question, you will get garbage data. In tech, we call this garbage in, garbage out. If you have bad inputs, you will have bad outputs, period. So I don't know why WPC doesn't understand this, or maybe they do, but they just like the idea of having this anti-tax propaganda on the ballot every year because they think it serves their agenda. That could be.
0: Well, having gotten all of our audience members firmly uh, behind this bill at this point, let's talk about its chances in the legislature, and then we'll talk about what people can do to support this. So two things about the legislature that I find very striking. One is that this actually got the support of three GOP senators in the past. Um, But uh, I'm, I'm very curious as to why you think, because I think it's unlikely that we'll get GOP support this year, but I'm very curious to why you think we might not get enough Democrat support. What are your thoughts on
1: that? Well, we had three Republican senators vote for the bill uh, two years ago, as you mentioned. And I think one of the reasons that they did so is because they and these were the senators who were actually sit on the Senate state government committee. Uh, They were Hans Zeiger, who is now a county council member. Uh, Barbara Bailey, who's now left the legislature, and then Brad Hawkins, who's still there, and probably will vote for the bill again. He's done it once. I think he will vote for it again if he has the chance, because he's taken a, a firm stand on this, and it's a principled stand. Look, from a Republican perspective, this is actually an example of waste, fraud, and abuse in government. Republicans are always talking about waste, fraud, and abuse. They say there's so much of it, it has to be there. Well, there aren't actually that many examples of it. When we ask them, where is it? Where's the fat in the budget? They can't point to it. It's like, where is it? Which which institutions do you want to close? Do you want to close the Washington State Penitentiary and Walla Walla? Or do you want to shut down the University of Washington? I mean, which institution right. uh, is there that you, want to, that you want to close? And they never really have an answer for that. But here is actually an example of something that we can shut down, right? And it will make Washingtonians' lives better. It will make it easier to vote. And so at least some Republicans went for the idea of, hey, we could save a few million dollars every year by not forcing counties to print these ridiculous propaganda pieces and then having the state reimburse them. It actually used to be in the even number of years, the counties would have to shoulder the cost themselves and only in the odd years would the state reimburse them. There's a long explanation for why that is, and it has to do with odd year elections, which we're going to talk a little bit more about no. in a sec, so I won't dwell on how that system came to be. But basically, there are Republicans who do support this, and there's actually a significant percentage of Republican voters in our polling who support this. Even more, I think, than independent voters, uh, there's actually a higher percentage of of, uh, Republicans who like the idea of repealing advisory votes than independents. And I think that has to do with the fact that we can save money, that getting rid of waste fraud abuse appeals to them. So I don't uh, close the door on getting Republican votes, but you're right that the the Democrats uh, aren't necessarily sold on doing this. The Senate has done it once before, so we figure that they may be willing to do it again, and the bill is waiting for them to run. It's in rules right now, and it could be brought to the floor at any time. But if the Senate passes it, the question is, will the House then act on it? And I would love for the House to act on it, but we've got to convince leadership that this is something worth doing. There's a lot of things competing for their energy and attention as there always are in a legislative session. And the question is, can they see the urgency of this? Can they see that we've had these things now for 10 years and they're a problem, they're suppressing the vote, they're they're interfering with people filling out their ballots. And that's something we need to get rid of, so that we can make it easier to vote. Because that's right. what we do in Washington—we make it easier to vote. So it's so time to put I the think, pressure where, on. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's where the problem is. Is can we convince them that this is an urgent matter that should have received their attention this session?
0: Well, let's talk about that. So, uh, and and I would just ask you: Do you believe that 5182 has a chance to pass this year?
1: It sure does. Uh, All we have to do, the bill is ready to go in the Senate, as I said. And and
0: if it does, would it take uh, effect for this year's election?
1: It would. It would take effect within 90 days of second. of
0: Now I know people are very, very motivated. So uh, first and foremost, I will mention that we have an action that people can take in the Take Action Network. I will have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Kat, for that. Um, So uh, along the, the, the timeline for the bill right now, Andrew, talk about how and when people can help support it.
1: Well, what we're doing right now is we're asking leadership in both houses to prioritize this because the bill has already had its hearing and it's through its committee of origin and it got exact and it's just in Senate rules. It could run at any time and it isn't subject to that February 3rd initial cutoff for bills. So we've got a few more weeks to work on this and that that breathing room is nice to have. You know, I'm looking forward to speaking more with House leadership about why we need this bill, making the case for it. But I'm not the only one who can do that. You all can do that too. You can send a message to Lori Jenkins and Pat Sullivan. It doesn't matter if you're their constituent or not. And Andy Billig in the Senate and Monica Dengra and Rebecca Saldana, those are the top senators uh, in leadership. And the folks I just named are the top representatives in the House in leadership. So You can send them all a message. It doesn't matter if you're their constituent or not. You just say, look, I really want you to prioritize this bill. Please run this bill this year. Uh, Do it for all Washingtonians. Ensure that it becomes easier to vote because in Washington, we knock down barriers to voting. It's what we do. We lead the country in this. And this is another barrier that we can knock down. So let's do it this year and get rid of these things.
0: Perfect, and I will have a list of the, uh, the the senators that you just discussed for people to contact. Let's we'll shift gears and talk about 1727. This is Representative Mia Gregerson's bill. This would end odd-year elections, as I mentioned. So there are a number of good reasons for uh, getting rid of odd-year elections. But first and foremost, I think, is that the turnout is always notoriously low uh, in these years. You actually took a look at recent turnout numbers in odd years. What did you find?
1: Well, one of the things that's really striking is that we got state-level odd-year elections in the early 1970s. So the turnout data goes back that far. And what is really just, you know, I, I look at this and I go, okay, what's the trend over time? And I wanna understand that. So we put all the odd year elections together using SOS, Secretary of State data. And in the last 10 years, the trend has gotten really pronounced. Uh, we There was a time when we were seeing turnout decline across all election types in all years. So I would say beginning in around 2012, and lasting through about 2017 that's a 5 year stretch turnout was d- going down at every type of election so for example 2016 was lower than 2012 and 2014 was lower than 2010 and so on and so on but starting in 2018 that we saw a divergence what ended up happening was in the even numbered years the tr- the trend reversed and we started seeing really good turnout but in the odd years the turnout just kept going down basically on average right so it's so going if,
0: kind of like this yeah
1: yeah it's 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 going two different ways like one one set of elections things are getting better which is the even numbered years and then the other set which is the odd numbered years things are continuing to be bad and so if you look at the last five odd year elections the trend is unmistakable 2017 is the worst turnout of all time 2015 is the second worst turnout of all time 2021 is the third worst turnout of all time And then 2019 and uh, 2013 are also in the top 10 all-time worst general election turnouts. So of the top 10 all-time worst general election turnouts, five of those are in the last 10 years. And they're the last (laughs) five-odd-year elections. So it's very clear people are not voting in odd-numbered years. And that has huge implications, especially for local governments, because that's when we do most of our local elections is in odd-numbered years. So MIA has a bill to correct this problem, and it just moves things into one cycle, right? Even numbered years. We do our electing for local offices at the same time we elect state and federal. And if we did that, instead of having maybe, I don't know, 35% turnout in a city like Redmond where I live, we would have over 60 or 70% voting on these races. You'd see twice the number of people electing for city council or, or for mayor or what have you.
0: It makes a lot of sense. I'm just going to play devil's advocate uh, very quickly and just ask you, do we worry that these county and municipal elections might get drowned out or lose funding to uh, federal and statewide
1: races? Well, I think there would be more on the ballot at one time, but you have to remember uh, it's, it's the people who get to decide or at least should get to decide what kind of system we have. And the message that voters are sending both in our polling and also just by not voting at odd year elections is we want longer ballots and even numbered years. We don't want it spread out like this. Cause you really have a choice. You can spread it out like we do, or you can put more on the ballot at one time. And yes, that does mean more work. There is more voting to do at one time, but voters have basically said, we prefer that. We want to have more on one ballot. That's what we'd like. So give that to us. That's what people said very clearly in our polling. It was unmistakable because we asked them two questions and not just one.
0: I, I'm going to ask you something that, that you had mentioned in a recent uh, email uh, about this bill, uh, and you had said something along the lines of that you felt that this was basically a democracy issue, that uh, that having odd year elections you felt was bad for democracy. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Talk about why.
1: Sure. So when you have very few people, like let's say fewer than two in five voters participating in an election, what you have is a sub-majority making decisions. I prefer the term submajority because then you avoid the the problems with the word minority being used in a different context. So think about a submajority as opposed to supermajority. A submajority is fewer than a majority. So if you have, let's say, 35%, 37%, some number in the 30s making decisions, that's, again, fewer than two in five voters who are turning out you therefore don't have the equivalent of a people's quorum if people don't know uh, they should know that in the legislature it takes an absolute majority to do business or to pass a bill you can't have fewer than 50 votes in the house or 25 votes in the senate to pass legislation you can't even gather to do business you have to have a minimum number of people there and you have to have a minimum number of people voting to pass a bill or it doesn't pass but in elections there's no quorum requirement there's no minimum turnout requirement except for bond measures and certain levy measures where there's a 40% minimum turnout requirement and a 60 vote threshold 60% vote threshold required. So we don't have that in elections and because we don't what it means is that a very small number of people can pass laws and make decisions for everybody else and people may not even realize that that's happening because they don't understand the implications of not voting. Sure. So we have to respect that voters are fatigued and that they want fewer elections because that's the way to keep uh, democracy strong. Sometimes less is more and less is better. In this case, I think both are true.
0: I like what you're saying here because I do feel like there, we're certainly experiencing a lot of burnout right now. And I can't help but kind of connect the dots between the election cycle that we just had and the one that we're just about to go into. And I would like to think that if we kept our powder dry uh, completely for 2022 and basically took 2021 off from elections, that we might have had a little bit more momentum going into this. Speculation, of course, but something that was going through my mind. Um, do you think that 1727 has a chance to pass, uh, to pass this year?
1: Well, it just got exact out of the committee of origin. Now, uh, we, we've just got a notification today that it's, it's arrived in the rules committee and it's being reviewed. So, yes, it does have a chance to pass and it will stay alive after the February 3rd cutoff because it got that seal of approval uh, from the committee chaired by Javier Valdez in the House, state government and tribal relations. But leadership has to agree to do it. If they don't wanna do it, then there's no floor vote and there's, there's no passage of this bill this year. But I view these things as marathons, not sprints. The last time we did this bill, it had a hearing and nothing else. This year we had executive action on the bill and the committee of origin and it's moving forward that's progress. So I'll take that progress. Even if that's all we get this year, that's really good. That's, that's a sign that this bill can come back year after year until we convince the whole legislature, or at least the, the portion of the legislature we'd have to convince in order to get a floor vote and you know a signature by the governor that this legislation is worthy. Los Angeles, as uh, Shasti Conrad, our good friend points out, has moved now to even numbered year elections for local races and they're expecting turnout to double. So it's gonna be a big change and it's gonna be a good change. And it's gonna be healthy and empowering for the people of Los Angeles to do their electing uh, when you know these federal and state positions are also voted right. on. We've heard the arguments against, and I just don't think any of them are credible. Oregon does it this way. And you know Oregon gets to have this nice break in between even-numbered year elections, where the odd-numbered years are just a few local things on the ballot, and they don't have all of these things that we have. And they get to do their strategizing and their planning and their R and R and everything. And I'm sure. jealous. It's like <laughs> let, let's get that for our state.
0: Well, I will. I will say to folks, uh, if you want uh, to read a little bit more about what Andrew has written, uh, we will have a blog post for you that goes into much more detail on 1727 and Cat. Again, thank you for that. Um, What would you like to see, Andrew, people do in support of 1727?
1: Uh, It's the same thing as uh, with 5182. Let leadership know you think they should run the bill. Our polling shows that really, you've got over 50% of voters saying they'd like this change, and only a quarter are opposed. So that's two to one support. And then there's another 24% who are not sure. So really, what we see is among those who have an opinion is two to one. And that's really powerful. A majority of the voters saying, yes, we'd like to move to even numbered year elections only really. And we would have to have some odd year elections sometimes. It's not like we would never, ever have an odd year election again. But this idea that, you know, We're regularly going to elect city councils and county councils and school boards and all these things in odd-numbered years. That would change. Now we would regularly elect these in the even-numbered years. We'd still have odd-year elections. It would still happen. But it wouldn't be like it is today where it's a ton of stuff on the ballot and all the regularly scheduled offices are in that cycle. It would instead be special occasions, basically.
0: I, before I let you go, I, I want to do what they do in the hot ones, and that is to turn the cameras on you and talk about what you have going on. So let's do that. Um, as I mentioned, Permanent Defense, uh, your organization that has been fighting Tim Iman for the last 20 years, is having a celebration on February 15th. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So Permanent Defense was founded February 15th, 2002. And it is our anti Iman project. It it works to hold him accountable and prevent his initiative factory from bringing destructive initiatives to pass in the state of Washington that would defund our public services. So we've now been going for 20 years. That project has been operational for that long. And And you started
0: in ninth grade. I just want to point that out for people. You started doing this. You started taking on Tim Iman in ninth grade. Amazing.
1: Correct. So it was a very very early age. And I, I honestly think all activists should start at a young age. If they possibly can i mean anytime is a good time to start but especially if you're young like i have gained 20 years of experience and i'm still only in my 30s so imagine you know how valuable that experience is to the progressive movement because i started so young but we we have done so much uh has worked very hard to counter iman's lies educate reporters figure out how to prevent him from finding money so that he can bring these destructive initiatives before permit defense iman was on the ballot every year and he was passing something so 99 2000 2001 2002 each of those years he got an initiative on the ballot and it passed that's many years of consecutive victories but after 2002 after the year that permit defense was founded. Iman has had no consecutive victories. So it's a twenty-year stretch of no consecutive wins. Yay! And that's a big change. And Very not nice, only man. that, love it. but not only that, but in starting in around 2013, which is about nine years ago, Iman started being on off the ballot more than he was on the ballot. So re- whereas there would be only you know the occasional year like 2003, 2006, 2014, uh, he was not on the ballot. But then starting that year, 2014 he's really been off the ballot for most of the last decade. So 2015 and 2019, he was on, but those were the only other times, unless you count his run for governor in which well, he was a candidate.
0: It's just phenomenal work, uh, Andrew. And I just, I know that that people uh, who know what you do are just incredibly grateful to you for taking uh, him on. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the event you got going on.
1: So on February 15th, we will be doing a big online celebration. Uh, it's online only. You know, we figured Omicron is still a problem and, Permit defense started online. It was a website before it was anything else. So why not celebrate online? So we're going to have a great big party. Shasty uh, Conrad, Tina Podlodowski are going to be there speaking. So you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, it's going to be a good old time and there's no cost to attend. You can donate to support per- Permit defense Pack if you would like, but uh, donations will not be required. You may RSVP and simply join us if you would like, and uh, you can make a financial contribution, but it's not required. So Outstanding. there. That RSVP form is on our website, permitdefense.org. It's going live. So you'll be able to RSVP there, and then you'll get the, the link to Zoom in and join us on February 15th at 530.
0: Just a couple quick things, and then I want to end on what we discussed at the top of the show. So quickly tell you started a podcast. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast world. Uh, tell us a little bit about the pod that you got going.
1: It's actually our second podcast. We did a oh, okay. podcast I was, yeah, way back I when in 2006. Uh when podcasting was much younger. Oh my
0: it, goodness. Wow, you were an early adopter. That was earlier than I got started. So that's awesome. We,
1: we, yeah, we did. So and those were like two, usually 20 minute podcasts focusing on issues. And I think we ran that podcast for a couple of years. But recently we started a new podcast. Cause you know, there there are so many podcasts, and it's like uh, Where? And, <laughs> However, do you mean? <laughs> yes, there there's so many to choose from. And Washington State and Podcast is an excellent podcast. So thanks oh, to thank all that's of kind. you who do subscribe because it's it's really great. But we thought, you know, what if we could What if we could bring something to the table that isn't there? What if we could do something that's regional in scope? And so our podcast, PNW Currents, you you see the NPI logo behind me. It focuses on the three states, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Each episode brings together three people, one from each state, and they join an NPI staff member to discuss an issue. So for example, we had a round table about COVID-19 and what we need to do to fight the virus. And some of the things that were said in that episode last July, I'm reading them now, and I'm going, whoa, these people were really, really looking ahead and doing Mm. some great, great work, like foreseeing what we were going to have to do to deal with COVID-19. And we've also had episodes on climate science, and we've had an uh, election-related episode, and we've had one on redistricting. So there have been some really great episodes produced. And when you bring people together across state lines, we find out what we have in common and what's different, right? And so it gives you a regional perspective that you just can't get any other way. And even the panelists are learning from each other in real time while they're recording because they usually think about what's going on in their state, not necessarily sure. what's happening in the neighboring states. We all are used to the national level and the state level, but there's also the regional level. And if nobody's exploring that, then I think that's a disservice. So PNW Currents is filling that void and allowing people to explore politics and issues and science and other topics from a regional perspective.
0: Very solid lane uh, to be to be occupying. And I think especially having uh, our friends in Idaho, our progressive friends in Idaho way and we tend to not hear from them uh, as much as I think we should. So that's great. Um, just very, very quickly, I, I know that you have a seismic safety uh, bill that you're working on. And uh, this is something obviously we should all be thinking about here in Cascadia. Very briefly, tell us about that.
1: So on Monday, the Senate Ways and Means Committee will be hearing a bill that would create a bond program at the state level to upgrade our schools. And as we all know, in Washington state, a lot of school funding comes from the local level, but many districts struggle to pass bonds or levies, so they can't fix their failing schools. You know, If your fire system is falling apart and your building was built 50 years ago and it's at risk of being destroyed in a tsunami and you can't do anything about it, it's like a pretty helpless feeling, right? Well, state lawmakers have known about this problem for years and they've really not done anything. And a new inventory conducted by the Department of Natural Resources at NPI's request and an others request has shown that we have a lot of seismically vulnerable schools. Some of them are very very vulnerable and we got to do something about it. So some really great lawmakers, including Jerry Paulette and David Frocht, are leading bipartisan groups of legislators to propose finally a fix for this issue. We create a statewide bond program to upgrade schools. And of course, uh, because it is relying on bonds as a financing mechanism, they have to go through the Constitution's bond requirement, which means there will likely be a statewide vote of the people if this legislation passes to authorize these bonds this November. So this is something that really has two parts. First is the legislation. Sure. uh, And that bill, again, is being heard on monday and i'll be testifying and you're welcome to join me and then uh there will be if that passes a statewide vote of the people to authorize the bond so npi has 20 years of ballot measure expertise that we just talked about and you can believe we're going to be putting that to work for this school seismic safety project
0: and what's what's the bill number on that for people to track
1: i think it's 5933 that's the senate version there's also a house version which i think is 2095
0: Okay, so before I let you go, uh, b- when we got started uh, this morning, before we started recording, you were telling us about a, pod, uh, a uh, blog rather, that you were writing uh, basically about how uh, we can't let the GOP get into our heads. Now, uh, I think a lot of people are feeling a little demoralized. I've talked about this at infinitum on the show. I really would love for you to talk a little bit about some of the things that you're saying in this blog post, because I think people really need to hear this right
1: now. Thank you so much for asking about that because this is something I'm feeling very passionate about. I believe very firmly that we are in control of our own destinies in more ways than we appreciate. And one of the things that we're noticing right now is the media coverage and the polling. And there's so much that's negative about Democrats and Democrats' ability to govern and our political prospects in 2022. And Republicans love this. They are the ones out there pitching a lot of this media coverage. So they're getting reporters to write these stories. Basically, Biden's getting credit for nothing good that he's doing. All the good economic gains we've had. No credit for that. But anything negative that happens, like you know, inflation is a concern for some people, or perhaps you know, we want to talk about the expiration of the child tax credit or anything else that's happening, Biden gets blamed for everything, but he gets credit for nothing. That's basically part of the problem in a nutshell. And the media is driving this because reporters are rooting for him to fail. I hate to say that because I love to think that objective reporters are really objective, but the truth is no human is perfectly objective. And people have a lot of trouble admitting their bias when they are committed to this idea of objectivity. And you know, a media that doesn't know how to deal with insurrections and bad faith on the part of one of our two political parties, their their model is broken. You can't just report a he said, she said anymore. If someone says climate science is real and someone else says it's not, and you give those two perspectives equal coverage, you're failing. If you give anti-vax information equal weight as real science, you're failing. And so what's happening right now in journalism is that their they're journalists are basically rooting for the Democrats and Biden to fail. I think it's because they want Trump to come back because they are addicted to all of the traffic and attention that they got during the years when he was in office. Their profits went up. Their ratings went up. They got more attention. Political reporters were stars. You know, every White House briefing was entertaining, right? And that's sort of like their metric of what's good. For, for us for as political reporters is, how many clicks and hits are we getting? How many people are reading our stories? Are we entertaining? They've become addicted to this idea that they have to be entertaining. And I don't know how to break them out of it, but when I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico and CNN, they are all failing. It's a disaster. They are not serving democracy. So them accepting Republicans' pitches for how to write their stories is a huge problem. And I don't want that to extend to us, those of us who are working as activists, So I'm writing a blog post about this and it touches on some of the polling we've seen recently, which is, you know, oh, Republicans are coming back and they're going to win the midterms. And there's like, you know, nothing we can do. And uh, local pollster Stuart Elway has a recent post when she says Republican voter ID is surging. Uh, meaning that the number of people who are identifying as Republicans is surging in his polling. But as I explain in my post, we think he actually underrepresented Republicans in his last poll along with Democrats. There is no Republican surge. It's been stable all along, all throughout 2021. It was relatively stable and Elway just missed something. And so I'm explaining what he missed in my post. And so I urge you to check it out and to understand we cannot let Republicans get into our heads. They are trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy where they want to convince us there's nothing we can do. They've already won the election before it's even begun. And so nothing we do will matter. That's what they want us to think, because if we think that, they're more likely to win. So don't think that. Instead, do everything you can to win these midterms. Volunteer, vote, donate, whatever you have the bandwidth to do. But do not let the Republicans get into your heads and make you convinced that we must despair and all is lost, because not a single vote has been cast. And we have a lot of work that we can do in order to win. So let's go out there, let's do the work, let's win, and then let's enjoy what the pundits do and say in response to the Democrats' stunning victory that no one could have predicted, right? Let's enjoy that in November after we've worked hard to get that out.
0: I, I was waving a lighter earlier because I was so enthusiastic about what you were saying. And I, I, I in my mind, I'm seeing people who are listening to it and viewing what you know what you just said and, and being just as enthusiastic as I was. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I will let uh, folks know that they can go to nwprogressive.org uh, to check that out. I will put the uh, the link to the blog post when it is done into the show notes. But if you want to go see that and other bits of, of Andrew's uh, writing and, of course, his very, very extensive work, uh, that's where you go. Andrew Villeneuve, as always, such a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you, Steven. It was was a pleasure and honor to be with you and all you Indivisible folks out there. You're doing wonderful work. It's so deeply appreciated by everyone in the Progressive Movement. Don't let anyone tell you that your work doesn't matter or that it's hopeless or you can't make a difference because a small number of people working very hard can move mountains. And we've seen it over and over again. So let's do it again. Uh, Let's win again. Let's defy the odds again. And let's have fun doing it.
0: And that'll do it for this week. Huge thank you to our executive producer, Kat Pipkin, for her work today. If you would like to see a video of this or any of our podcasts, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indivisible pod. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.